the ghosts and the spirits that are here go back for centuries. Mr. Davis, I'd really, really love to speak to you if you're here in spirit with us. It certainly feels like the ghosts outnumber the living here sometimes. You're listening to Why Is This Place So Haunted, the podcast that investigates places with a history of hauntings. I'm your host, Rachel Black. On this episode, we're going to talk about curses. Do you believe that after hundreds or even thousands of years, horrible things can happen because of a curse? Some people look at these events as mere coincidence or bad luck, but maybe they're not. Newport, Rhode Island is a charming seaside city that brings to mind Gilded Age glamour, sailing regattas, and crusty fishermen more than ghosts. But lurking in the ruins of old mansions and on its colonial streets are the links to centuries-old hauntings. Surprisingly, one such haunting may have ties to ancient Egypt. You may wonder, what could possibly link ancient Egypt to Newport? Well, the largest collection of Egyptian antiquities in America was once housed in a Gilded Age mansion brought there by amateur archaeologist and retired millionaire Theodore Davis. Today, the artifacts in the mansion are long gone, but locals believe there are spirits who still walk the grounds. And it's hard not to wonder if all of those ancient Egyptian tomb relics may have something to do with it. We sent Kristen Torella of Destination America to Newport to investigate. Kristen, where exactly is the property located and what's it like today? Hey, Rachel. There's this stretch of road in Newport called Ocean Avenue. Hugging the coastline, it takes you past dramatic rocky inlets, private beach clubs, and stunning coastal homes. Right before the road ends, you'll drive through Brenton State Park, where you'll see people picnicking or flying kites. It's just this nice open green space right on the water. But here's where it gets strange. And you have to pay attention, because I've driven past this park dozens of times, and only recently did I spot it. Just peeking out of the tree line, there's this crumbling ruin of architecture. And when you start talking to locals, you discover that it's a place that everyone's heard about, but nobody really knows what's fact or legend. Locals call it the Bells, but in its heyday, it was the stable house for Theodore Davis's estate, the Reef. It turns out that Britain State Park is actually situated on top of a mound of the bulldozed ruins of the mansion that once stood there. But the stable house remains, now vandalized and in a state of decay. You mentioned that you talked to some locals. Did you find someone who could give you a little more context about the place, what's happening there, why it might be haunted? Yeah, so I reached out to John Brennan, author of Ghosts of Newport and guide for the Ghosts of Newport tours, to fill me in on the local history, and he offered to meet me at the park. So this is the remains of the stables. Over the course of the years, through the 60s, 70s, and 80s, it became one of the many spots in Newport where the youth would gather to uh, drink, maybe do a little illicit activity and get themselves into trouble, um, and also have a lot of encounters with ghosts. As I always say, most of Newport's ghost stories do tend to start with the phrase, well, I was a little drunk at the time, and that's no change here at the stables. Uh, But there are lots and lots of reports of people who've heard strange things while they were there, uh, voices that were disembodied. Embodied. A lot of people have heard horses while they were there um, and other eerie noises and experiences. The stables is an imposing structure with elegant lines that give you a sense of what it looked like back in its full glory. But today it's crumbling and the walls are covered in graffiti. The floor is littered with crumpled beer cans, broken glass, and debris. 
Outside, nature has begun to take over and vines and tree branches enshroud it. A chain link fence feebly tries to keep people out. As John explained, reports of paranormal activity go back decades, but nobody knows who or what is haunting this place. Realizing that I needed to find out more about Theodore Davis and his life on this land, I contacted John M. Adams, author of The Millionaire and the Mummies, the only book detailing the eccentric life of this self-made man. Here's John on the phone. Theodore Davis was a very remarkable man. He was a robber baron of America's Gilded Age, and he transformed himself into the most famous Egyptian explorer and archaeologist of his time. He was born in 1838 in rural mid-state New York in very poor circumstances. Davis left home for good when he was 15 years old to seek his fortune. In my book, The Millionaire and the Mummies, it details how he made his great fortune. But for today, let's just suffice it to say, he became very, very wealthy because of his keen intellect, uh, a lot of hard work, a bit of luck, and an almost unlimited capacity to engage in fraud, bribery, and perjury. By 1882, Davis in his early 40s had decided he'd made a big enough pile, and so he built his mansion in Newport, Rhode Island, which he named The Reef. He moved in there with his wife and his mistress, who was herself a very wealthy heiress from Columbus, Ohio, named Emma Andrews, and uh, Emma was also the cousin of Davis's wife. Needless to say, uh, cohabitating with his wife and mistress at the same time was rather awkward for everyone. Uh, the tensions that had to be there uh, built as the years went by. Well, after moving to Newport for over 30 years, uh, Davis and Emma were inseparable, and they spent their summers at the mansion in Newport and then would spend their winters traveling through Europe, collecting fine art, uh, and uh, traveling to Egypt for the very nice climate. Davis quickly fell in love with Egypt, and he became fascinated with ancient Egypt and archaeology. Uh, so by 1901, uh, he began funding and leading digs and excavations in the Valley of the Kings. Uh, one of the first archaeologists he employed was a British fellow named Howard Carter, who became immortal in 1922 when he discovered Tutankhamun's tomb. Uh, from 1901 to 1914, he discovered the record of 42 different tombs in the valley. As thanks for funding the excavations, the Egyptian government gifted Davis artifacts from his digs. Davis built custom cases to display his collection in the Great Hall of the Reef. But it wasn't just art and relics. Here again is John Adams, who reveals that Davis may have brought back human remains. From one of the tombs, he recovered a skull from some ancient Egyptian and was said to have brought it home and used it as a paper holder on his desk in the reef for some years. And here again is John Brennan weighing in on the spiritual implications of disturbing the burial chambers of the ancients. Being a pharaoh, you were buried in a very carefully controlled way um, with the expectation that you would go on to the afterlife with your body and all of your possessions. If your spirit were around, you would be probably incensed that this man was stealing anything that was left that hadn't already been robbed by grave robbers. He was taking them and decorating his house with them, including your body. There was one mummy in particular, and he reports touching its tooth and the whole thing crumbled to ash upon his touch. That probably would have caused a great deal of anger among the Egyptian pharaohs to be dragged off to a faraway continent and displayed as a gag item in the corner of the room. 
Okay, so we've got disturbed ancient graves and human remains on display, which sounds like the perfect recipe for a curse, or at least a haunting. Yes, but John Adams actually has another theory. Daniel Jones, who was always, of course, known as Jones, he was Davis's valet, and as uh, suited a nouveau riche robber baron, uh, Jones was British uh, by origin. Jones was about 10 years younger than Davis, and over time they became friends. He had a wide variety of duties. Uh, in addition to setting out Davis's clothes for him every morning and shining Davis's shoes every night, uh, he was really apparently quite the jack of all trades. Basically, it appears that Jones could fix or manage just about any situation that confronted his employer. Uh, the ends of their lives were rather sad. As uh, Davis grew older, not only did his physical health begin to deteriorate, but he was afflicted with a dementia which grew increasingly worse over time. At the same time, the tension between Emma and his wife Annie had just reached the breaking point when around 1910, Emma basically uh, managed the expulsion of Annie, the wife, from the reef. This climate of just misery in the mansion and the fact that Davis had degenerated into a very, very near vegetative state uh, apparently caused Jones to uh, go into a very deep depression. And one evening in 1914, he was standing outside his room in the reef and took out a pistol and blew his brains out. I personally am skeptical about most matters of the supernatural, but if there is any ghost haunting the reef, it seems most likely to me it would probably be Jones, who was an intimate member of the family from the time they moved there and died in such uh, desperate, unhappy circumstances. Is this land cursed by an ancient mummy, or is it haunted by the unsettled spirit of a dedicated valet who can't stop serving Theodore Davis, even after death? In search of answers, Kristen joined Ken DaCosta of Rise Up Paranormal for an investigation at the stable. So Kristen, did anything unusual happen? I think we got some interesting evidence, but you'll have to listen for yourself. This is Chris. Hi. Hi. This is Julie. Hi. Hey, so hi. <laughs> okay, so here's our deal. Chris, what we'll do is in real time so we can hear anything that's fairly quiet. Even if we have 15 minutes, you know what I mean, and do yeah. our thing. Okay. Lights out. Okay, EVP session. Good evening. My name is Ken. It's a pleasure to be here. If there is anyone here in spirit who'd like to speak to us this evening, your presence is very welcome. I'm not sure if anyone's ever tried to come in and communicate with you, but we're gonna to try to do that right now. Specifically, I'm looking for Theodore Davis. This is the gentleman who had this estate built. My understanding is that you were given permission by the Egyptian government to go into the Valley of Kings, excavate Pharaoh's tombs. My question is to the point because of Everything that's befallen you here, some of the misfortune, 
There have been instances where people have excavated those tombs and had a lot of horrible things happen to them. Did you ever feel that this was a possibility with you here? Let's back up a moment. The idea that one can be cursed by a mummy has been around for a while. In fact, it's long been rumored that Howard Carter, the man who discovered King Tut's tomb, opened the door to Tutankhamun's curse. Just six weeks after the discovery, in 1922, the excavation's patron, George Herbert, the fifth Earl of Carnarvon, died suddenly in Cairo. His was the first of many mysterious deaths that followed for the team that discovered King Tut's final resting place. Yeah, many believe in the curse of the pharaohs. King Tut's tomb was discovered after Davis died, but stories of curses that would cause bad luck, illness, or death go back centuries to the ancient grave robbers who first disturbed these tombs. Davis himself wasn't a very spiritual man and probably didn't believe in such things, but that doesn't mean he was immune to them. Let's go back to the investigation because things take an interesting turn. If there's anyone else here who'd like to speak to us, and you're willing and capable to do so, please feel free to do that. If there's a Mr. Jones who's here, who took his own life, we're not here to judge or to ask why, but if you'd like to share anything with us, you have our full attention. So, Kristen, have you ever been on an investigation prior to this one? And take our listeners into that moment and how you were feeling and what was happening. Sure, yeah. It was my first investigation, and it was intense. It's pitch black. You can't see anything. So I was just standing next to Ken, listening to him ask these questions and waiting to hear and feel something, really wanting to hear and feel something, but also not wanting to. Um, It's a strange, intense experience. And, you know, every time Ken would beckon to Davis or to other spirits who might have been there, my anxiety would just ratchet up another level. Well, your anxiety is definitely understandable since this was your first ghost hunt. And you did stick with it. Let's get back to the investigation. So, Mr. Davis, again, you know, I'd really, really love to speak to you if you're here in spirit with us. You're a fascinating man. You really are. I've read a lot about you. I've done some research on your life. I asked the question about the artifacts here only out of curiosity to gauge whether or not you believe in such things as superstition and curses and things of that nature. Obviously, it didn't impede your work. Mr. Davis, maybe one more opportunity for you. I know our time here is short. I apologize for an abbreviated visit, but There is a significant storm coming up the coast. And this is going to happen very shortly, within the next day or so. And I sincerely hope for no further damage to your property. I know that this was damaged by the 38 hurricane, the mansion was. This building was struck by lightning, which is why I was asking if you felt, whether it's yes or no, that having these artifacts here somehow signified a curse 
of some type? Could you give me a yes or no on how you feel on that, please? You want to wrap it up? I'm happy. Wrap it and see what we got, if there's anything on the tape. So I have to know, did you get anything on the tape? We didn't think that we did at the time because Ken was listening in real time on his recording device. Um, But just a couple days later, he texted me after he'd had time to review all the tape. And he said, we struck gold. And it turned out that we got two very different EVPs. If you're new to paranormal investigating, EVP is shorthand for electronic voice phenomena. These audio recordings are believed to be spirit voices. Yes, so the first one happens right after Ken opens up the floor to hear from anyone present, and then he makes a plea to Daniel Jones, the valet. If there's a Mr. Jones who's here, who took his own life, we're not here to judge or to ask why, but if you'd like to share anything with us, You have our full attention. Now here's the EVP that was captured on Ken's sensitive equipment. You have our full attention. In case you missed it, here it is one more time. So Rachel, what do you hear? I'm not entirely sure. It sounded like a high-pitched voice, maybe a child. The words weren't totally clear to me, but definitely a child's voice. Yes, to me and to Ken as well, we agree. We think it sounds distinctly like a child. I can't make out what the child is saying, but the first time I heard this, it actually made my heart jump because I have a little one at home. And as a mom, you just have a radar for a little voice calling out in the middle of the night. And to me, it just sounds like a little kid. Ken analyzed this clip with his software and he believes that the child is saying, Daddy. Wow, that's intense. I mean, you were in a park at night, though, so it is possible that there were kids around playing outside, and that's what you picked up. Actually, no. It was right before the park closed, and not only was it deserted in the area around the stables, but it was very dark and well past bedtime. And Ken also had team members monitoring the area to ensure that any bystanders wouldn't be confused with evidence. This is interesting. So it's possible that there is a spirit of a small child there. Is there any reason to believe that a child would be attached to this place? Well, I thought it was interesting that this happens just after Ken mentions Daniel Jones. Jones did have at least one child, but he lived well into adulthood. There was, however, a staff of eight men who lived in the stable house, so perhaps this child was connected to one of them and had spent a lot of time there. There's also many shipwrecks just offshore, and many unidentified bodies were buried along the shoreline after washing up from these ill-fated journeys. There's so much history at this property, it's really hard to say who this little child could be. You mentioned that you got a second EVP, and you did give me a heads up that this one is R-rated, so a warning to our listeners who may not be using headphones. So this one happens right after Ken was asking Davis about curses. And Ken gets a little flip. He kind of has this tone of like, it obviously didn't impede your work. So here it goes again. I asked the question about the artifacts here only out of curiosity to gauge whether or not you believe in such things as superstition and curses and things of that nature. Obviously, it didn't impede your work. Okay, and here's the EVP. Obviously, it didn't impede your work. 
Okay, so basically a spirit, or whatever it was, said, F you? That's not very inviting, and I don't want to say the full-on word, but I think our <laughs> listeners can get the point. Wow. I know. And the craziest thing is it sounds like a response to Ken's question, and Theodore Davis did not have the reputation for being a very nice man. Wow. I mean, that's that's crazy. I mean, I'm kind of a skeptic, and when I hear the EVPs, I'm just like, well, it could be this, it could be that, but that one's pretty clear to me. What does it all mean? I don't know. Part of me agrees with John Adams, and I think that poor Daniel Jones, the valet, could still be attached to this land. And he would probably be going nuts over the teenage vandals and trespassers on the property. That would totally explain him giving them a spook in the stables at night to get them out and protect the place where he lived and served and ultimately died. I would love to have concrete evidence to support the Egyptian curse theory, but the reality is that it's probably a lot of things all layered together and feeding off of the energy of this place. The crashing waves, the past fires, the lightning strikes, the unidentified bodies that washed up to shore and were buried in unmarked graves. Add some ancient remains and a lot of family drama, and you've got quite the recipe for a haunting. I guess this one remains a mystery, but in our next story, there's no question that there's a curse at play. It's a historically documented curse, in fact. Yes, unbelievably, the colonial government of Newport went to great lengths to execute and then curse 26 pirates. Here to explain is Christopher Rondina, a Newport local who is the author of Ghost Ships of New England, Vampires of New England, and the upcoming Historic Ghosts of New England. The Gravelly Point Pirates, it's I think one of Newport's most fascinating legends a uh, story that actually dates back to the what we call the golden age of piracy here in Newport. In about 1723, the crown of England, because of course we were all English colonies at that time, had grown increasingly tired of the pirates harassing the coastline here. And one particularly uh, brutal battle took place just a few miles off the coast of Newport. Three ships were engaged in the battle, a, um, a warship called the Greyhound, which is a British naval ship, and two pirate ships, the Fortune and the Ranger. The battle was an almost five-hour battle, and by the end of it, the Ranger had taken pretty bad damage. So the Fortune, which was commanded by a very well-known pirate of the era called Ned Lowe, um, ended up realizing that with the Ranger weakened, he had a break to escape. So he turned and ran, left the Ranger to be captured. The Ranger was captured. The men aboard, Charles Harris and his crew, were all taken to Newport for trial, and they were sentenced to hang. So on a July morning of 1723, they marched them all down Long Wharf, one of the oldest wharves in Newport, and in a single afternoon, they hung all 26 men. It stands to this day as the largest mass execution in American history. In most locales, this would be where the story ends and the haunting begins. But the officials of Newport were just getting started. In order to make an example of them, because Newport had so long been known as a friendly port for piracy, they left the bodies hanging in their uh, nooses on the gallows for a good chunk of the summer. And in order to prevent them from rotting too quickly, they actually painted the bodies with tar and left them hanging there. This way, as the bodies slowly decayed and rotted, and it was a very grisly sight indeed, if any other pirates uh, um, did come into the port looking for a safe haven, they'd realize that Newport was no longer a friendly port for their type. Now here's where it gets totally bizarre. Christopher explains what they did with the bodies once they finally cut them down that fall. So they rowed the bodies across the bay here over to Goat Island, a little strip of land that at that time was only a goat pasture. So as such, it was unhallowed ground, never blessed by a priest. 
They waited until the lowest ebb of the tide and they buried the bodies between the high and low tide mark. And they did this so that as time went by, weeks and months and years and centuries, that the water would always wash back and forth across the graves. So the curse was that they were buried in unhallowed ground, neither at land nor at sea, so that their souls would literally never be able to find their way to their final reward. They were restless eternally and never able to go on to heaven or hell. So they've done a very effective job of cursing these 26 pirates in death, leaving them in perpetual spiritual limbo. Sounds like a recipe for paranormal activity, no? Yeah, and the craziest thing is that all of this detail about the curse and the tideline burial went down in the historic records. In fact, there's even poetry that the pirates were required to write and recite publicly prior to their execution. As Christopher mentioned, at the time of the tideline burial, Goat Island, it's this tiny island inside of Newport Harbor, was uninhabited. Of course, now that's no longer the case. There's a hotel, a wedding venue, condos, and the restless spirits of 26 pirates. Well, as far as we know, the bones of these 26 men are still there beneath the soil of Goat Island. They're, they've never been disturbed. There's no record of them ever being disinterred. And that might explain why this entire area, not just Goat Island itself, but actually Gravelly Point and the entire what we call the Point section of Newport, one of its oldest historic neighborhoods, is supposed to be haunted by the souls of these 26 men. And although those kind of legends are very common, it's interesting down here, there's a phenomena that you rarely hear anywhere else in Newport, which is this keening, almost wailing sound that's often heard um, in the evening hours. I've heard it many times myself. A lot of folks in Newport have. And of course, the, the skeptics out there tell you that it's just the wind whistling through the rigging and the ships out here. But it's nowhere else more distinct and more common than it is somehow down here on uh, Gravelly Point. And the sound is absolutely haunting. So the sound of them calling out from the graves, which is what the legend says, seems to be more common down here than anywhere else. But in addition to that, is that a lot of the local sailors and fishermen claim that uh, no ship that goes down without its crew can rest easy at the bottom of the sea. And so they say that on the darker nights when it gets real foggy out here, that there's still a clipper ship out there in the darkness with tattered sails and a broken hull that still searches for its crew, that the ranger itself actually rises from the seabed and goes out in search of her crew and that she's silent as the grave, there's never a soul aboard, and that for 300 years or pretty close to it that she's been out there listening for the cries of her crew. Basically what he's saying is that ever since these pirates were put to death and their souls eternally damned, there's a ghost ship out there seeking its crew. And remember John Brennan from our first story? Well, while I was chatting with him, I just happened to ask if he had ever had his own paranormal experience in Newport. And it turns out he did have one that's actually connected to our cursed pirates. There is a mass pirate graveyard um, on the north end of Goat Island, uh, where 26 pirates are buried. Um, and that spot is now the site of the Hyatt Hotel. But I was there once, and I did see a lot of orbs floating above the water. Uh, this was long before I became a ghost tour guide, and it was, it was just a, an amazing and eerie sight as I looked out towards the bridge uh, and to see these bright, sort of whitish-greenish orbs floating in the water. It was, it was really kind of spectacular to see. Those orbs he describes are a common report of activity on Goat Island. For our listeners who may not be familiar with the supernatural phenomena, 
Orbs are believed to be the manifestation of spirit energy, and they can appear in various colors. Green denotes dishonesty and jealousy, which would make sense for a place haunted by pirates. So our final curse is a little different. This story takes us to the north end of Aquidneck Island and explores whether or not a bloodline can be cursed with evil and homicidal tendencies. Christopher Rondina's upcoming book, Historic Ghosts of New England, delves into this creepy and tragic family story that he calls the Cornell Curse. It actually dates back to 1673, and uh, on the northern end of the island here in the town of Portsmouth, a elderly woman by the name of Rebecca Cornell was found burned to death in her home. And although the original coroner's report suggested that it was an unhappy accident, that's a quote, they eventually ended up disinterring her body and investigating again. Rebecca's brother, John Briggs, reported that her ghost appeared to him one night. That she came shrouded in flame, glowing like the light of dawn. And that she said, see how I am burned over my body. But then she showed that she had a wound in her chest. John was very disturbed by this vision. He immediately came to the constable here in Newport, reported what he had heard. And this was an era in history when what they called spectral evidence was considered admissible in court. Basically, the supernatural was considered to be viable testimony in court. So they reopened the case. They went out to the gravesite of Rebecca Cornell. They exhumed her body and found that exactly the wound that was described in his vision was on her body. So it became a murder investigation. Eventually, suspicion pointed at her own son, Thomas Cornell. He was the last person to see her alive. He was considered to be a drunk. He was uh, jobless. And they felt that possibly he'd had an argument with his mother and struck her down and then burned her body to cover the evidence. That at least was the story that they painted in court. But so much of this actually hinged on the appearance of this ghost. So in the trial records for the Cornell murder, the ghost's testimony is actually inscribed in the trial records. In the aftermath, Thomas Cornell, her son, was hung for the crime. But Thomas uh, had a wife and his wife was pregnant and her uh, daughter it was named Innocent Cornell as a tribute to her father because, of course, his father, her father uh, maintained that he was innocent right until the day he died. And so the, the bloodline continued. In the aftermath of this, over the course of the last 300 years, numerous other incidences happened uh, within the Cornell family where someone was murdered, someone committed suicide, somebody, uh, it was a double homicide, a fratricide, uh, all these family connections. And it just seems to be an ongoing curse within the family. In um, 1819, a young soldier named William Cornell shot to death a fellow soldier in cold blood at Fort Adams right here in Newport. Uh, a few years before that, a young woman by the name of Sarah Maria Cornell was found murdered in Tiverton, Rhode Island, just a few miles north of the Cornell farm, uh, allegedly murdered by a priest who had impregnated her and then killed her to cover up the evidence. In Chautauqua, New York, a family who was originally from Dartmouth, again, just a few miles from the original Cornell farm, uh, a man murdered his pregnant wife and then attempted to slit his own throat. He wasn't successful. He ended up going to jail for the crime. But again and again and again, the Cornell family seems to be uh, subject to this murderous curse. And it all came to a head in 1892 when a young woman in Fall River was accused of brutally murdering her mother and her father. And her name was Lizzie Borden, of course, one of the most famous murder cases in history. But Lizzie Borden is a direct descendant of innocent Cornell. 
Wow. So do you think that it could be a curse that started when a son killed his mother, or do you think it could be genetic? Well, most people who talk about it say that it appears that this curse was born on the day that uh, that Thomas killed his mother. Again, allegedly, the the evidence was circumstantial, but he certainly went to the gallows for the crime. Whether it was his spirit reaching out from beyond the grave and, and creating this curse, or whether it was the murder of his mother, or, I mean, it's hard to say, but the curse certainly has seemed to follow the family for centuries. Uh, one thing I often point out, however, is that the curse appears to have ended with Lizzie Borden. Lizzie Borden died childless, and uh, so there was no one to carry on the bloodline from her, so possibly the curse ended with her. That Lizzie Borden's connection is chilling. I mean, it gave me goosebumps. I know. Everyone knows the Lizzie Borden story, but there's this whole crazy backstory that I had no idea existed. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty insane. And I'd have to say that based on our three stories, Newport is definitely haunted and has possibly been the victim of some curses over the centuries. What do you think? Definitely. It's hard to make sense of all of this, and I'm wondering if you have any final thoughts. Ken and I were talking about this after our investigation at the stables, and I think he summed it up quite nicely. I don't know why some people can pass on and others seem to stay behind. I mean, that's the question. That's, that's, sure. that's why we do what we do, you know, and I don't know if we're ever going to find an answer for it. But, um, you know, we're trying to take these cases and put them all together and just see if there's a constant that runs through them, some kind of common denominator, why these things are happening. Ken's right, and we encourage our listeners to keep exploring the unknown. If you want to check out pictures and documents from the stories you heard here, go to thehauntus.com, a blog dedicated to the creepy, spooky, and odd, brought to you by Destination America. Thanks to our contributors, John Brennan, John M. Adams, Ken DaCosta and his Rise Up Paranormal team, and Christopher Rondina. You can also find out more about them and links to their work on our blog. On our next podcast, we'll be exploring another extremely haunted location, the town of Gettysburg. Why is this place so haunted is a collaboration between Destination America and The Hauntist. The podcast is written and produced by Kristen Torella and Rachel Black. Audio sound design and mixing provided by Cadell Cook. Audio and field support provided by David Godbout. <laughs>